Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. As customary, at the end of this reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. Kindly respond by saying, thanks be to God. We're reading from 2 Kings chapter 24, from verses 8 to 17, and then to chapter 25, from verses 27 to 29. 2 Kings 24, from verses 8 to 17, chapter 25, from verses 27 to 29. I read. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. His mother's name was Nehushta, daughter of Elnathan. She was from Jerusalem. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father had done. At that time, the officers of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, advanced on Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And Nebuchadnezzar himself came up to the city while his officers were besieging it, Jehoiachin, king of Judah, his mother, his attendants, his nobles, and his officials all surrendered to him. In the eighth year of the reign of, king, of the king of Babylon, he took Jehoiachin prisoner. As the Lord had declared, Nebuchadnezzar removed the treasures from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace and cut up the gold articles that Solomon, king of Israel, had made for the temple of the Lord. He carried all Jerusalem into exile, all the officers and fighting men, and all the skilled workers and artisans, a total of 10,000. Only the poorest people of the land were left. Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiachin, captain to Babylon. He also took from Jerusalem to Babylon the king's mother, his wives, his officials, and the prominent people of the land. The king of Babylon also deported to Babylon the entire force of 7,000 fighting men, strong and fit for war, and a 1,000 skilled workers and artisans. He made Mathaniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the year Awel Marduk became king of Babylon, he released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. He did this on the 27th day of the 12th month. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king gave Jehoiachin a regular allowance as long as he lived. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Tedu. Good morning, all. Nice to see us all, especially if you're here for the first time. It's nice to see some familiar faces I've not seen in a while as well. All right, so my name is Femi, and as um, Emmanuel mentioned, we have started a series that we called um, Love Lagos. Love Lagos. Um, in this church, we have three values to love Jesus, love people, and love Lagos. And so we've done two sermons in that, and um, we're, we're going into the third one. Now, if you, the title of this sermon is actually, it's almost like I'm setting myself up for, for defeat. The title of this sermon is, Why Remain in Lagos? <laughs> people are like, everyone's looking at me like, yeah, answer the question. Because some people are saying, how about titling it, Why Should I Stay in Lagos? Oh, sorry, why shouldn't I leave Lagos, rather? Some people are like, why shouldn't I leave Lagos? There was um, um, a guy who recently wanted to travel to um, Istanbul from here in Lagos. Now, Istanbul is about, it's just over 7,000 kilometers. From Lagos to Istanbul is about 7,000 kilometers. 
and the estimated time of travel is about just about six hours. Six hours, okay? So six hours for seven thousand. Only problem is the guy was living from he lives in Aja. So obviously he has to go to the airport. <laughs> now the distance from Aja to the airport is less than 50 kilometers. The guy eventually got to Istanbul. The time it took him to go to Istanbul from Murtala Mohammed Airport was two hours less than the time it took him from Aja to the airport. Why remain in Lagos? <laughs> you know, the traffic situation is one of those things. I'll even give you another example. You know, in LA, in Los Angeles, the annual, the annual average time someone spends in traffic, you know how long, how long it is? Annual average time in LA, 128 hours for the whole year. So they spend about five and a half days in traffic every year. And in Moscow, Moscow is terrible. <laughs> Moscow, they spend 210 hours which is just, on, uh, just under nine days, respectively. The reason why that guy made it in eight hours is because in Lagos, you know how long we spent? We spent, <laughs> wait for it, 1,560 hours. Let me explain what that is. 65 days a year. That's over two months. Why stay in Lagos? <laughs> in fact, recently there was a study that said that Lagos was the third most stressful city to live in. Because not only does this affect productivity, that eventually starts to affect mental health. It said Lagos was the third most stressful city to live in. Do you know the only two above it? The number one was Baghdad in Iran, and number two was Kabul in Afghanistan. In fact, that's why someone recently said, if you need to live in Lagos, you have to understand, to understand being Lagos, you have to know, one, when to drive. Two, when to take Uber. Three, when to take Gokada. Four, when to trek. Five, when to stay at home. So I feel like I'm just giving you guys some statistical reasons to finally complete that application to Canada, haven't <laughs> I? But I'm not done yet. Let me give you some narrative reasons. There was a recent thread that was going on on Twitter, and somebody said, post the reason why you eventually, what broke the camel's back that eventually pushed it out of Lagos? I'll just quote one guy who says this. Brother was shot by a robber as he drove into our house rushed him to the hospital. They demanded the police report before treatment. Rushed to the police station, explained in detail what happened, and the officer said, I should wait, so that he completes Candy Crush stage 986. I don't even know what that means. How many, how many stages are maybe, maybe, Maybe Candy Crush has like, maybe 1,000 and, OK, I, I don't know. To which somebody eventually wanted to sum up living in Lagos, and it says, or Nigeria, it says, being in Nigeria is as being in a domestic violent relationship. There will always be a reason to stay until it ends you, literally. So get this, all of you that are here, you are in a domestic <laughs> violence relationship. <laughs> And all that is at the end of this is that it will end you. <laughs> now, I actually think that is way over the mark. And you know, it's easy to say things like that when you have the opportunity to leave. What about people who don't have the opportunity to leave? But I also think, yes, it may have been one or two, a number of people's experiences. But as a whole, is that the general experience? Life here is hard. But I want to try to make a Christian case for remaining in Lagos. I don't agree with that description that was given. Um, but I think that God would want you to stay in Lagos. Now, I'll make a Christian case for it. I'm not about to condemn people that are leaving. I'm not saying that this is going to be the bull's eye argument. But I hope it is a biblical one. 
You see, Lagos will not be a great place to stay if you have a certain lens through which you view life here. If you view life here, if you put on the lens that is only socioeconomic and individualistic, Lagos will be a terrible place to stay. If life is all about socioeconomic development for you and just you and your family, Lagos will be a great place to stay. However, I do want to make the case that God is calling us, a lot of us, not to leave because he has a plan for Lagos and it includes you. He's going to challenge you to take up a lens, to put up the other one, so he's going to challenge you to take up a lens that though is not against socioeconomic and individual welfare, it's a lens that includes a spiritual outlook and also an outlook that benefits the common good, not just the individual. Amen? I think God wants you to stay because he wants to bless this city through you for his own glory. So we'll look at this in three, in three um, different parts. Why remain in Lagos the title? So when you leave, why you remain, and when you remain. When you leave, why you remain, and when you remain. So let's start, and let's go to a passage. I have to confess, this is going to be a little bit of an unorthodox sermon, and not necessarily the way I preach most times. But what is the context of the passage we just read? The context of the passage we just read is that God's people now in Judah. Now, God had a nation, Israel, because he had promised Abraham that through Abraham was going to save the world. Now, the plan for that was that Abraham will have a child who will have another child, different offspring that will eventually lead to a nation. That nation was then caught in slavery in Egypt. When they, took, when they came out of Egypt, God promised them a land of theirs. He put them in the land. After he put them in the land, they had a series of judges. That didn't work out very well. Eventually, they had a king. The first king wasn't very great. That led to another king, David. And God promised David that he would have a, an eternal lineage on the throne. Fast forward after that, David had a son, Solomon, very wealthy, very wise. Well, his own too didn't end well. And after Solomon, in Solomon's son, who was really a terrible boy, eventually the kingdom split into two. There was the southern, king, there was the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. So the northern kingdom is Israel, ten tribes. The southern kingdom is Judah. By and large, most of the kings of the two kingdoms were always sinful. A few ones were good, but most of them were sinful. So the northern kingdom eventually was defeated by the Assyrian kingdom in 722 B.C., they defeated them, and they repopulated the place, mixed them with um, other people from other nations. And so a mixed breed came up, which eventually led to the historic uh, Samaritans that we know. That was 722 BC. 125 years later, Judah continued to sin and sin and sin. Judah, that's the southern kingdom, 125 years after that had happened with the, uh, the northern kingdom, Judah, then, 125 years later, we find what we have here. What do we have? We have a young king, 18 years old, verse 8, has ascended to the throne, but his own um, reign was only for three months. Why? Because now the superpower, no longer the Assyrian kingdom, but now this new superpower called the Babylonian Empire is coming against them. They have a king called Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar then laid siege to this city. And in verses 10 to 12, we can see that they eventually surrendered. This is one of the darkest days in the history of this nation. But don't forget, the reason why this happened was they turned away from God. And God had already promised this in the law that was given through Moses hundreds of years ago in Leviticus chapter 26. And it says this. I think it should be on the screen. In spite of this, if you, in spite of this, you still do, if you do, still do not listen to me, but continue to be hostile toward me, then in my anger I will be hostile toward you, and I will punish you for your sins seven times over. I will scatter you among the nations, and will draw out my sword and pursue you. Your land will be laid waste, and your cities will lie in ruins. God had already warned them. So what happened? Late siege was a military conquest. But this was something, started, something happened here that was 
a little bit different from your typical um, bombardment of a city, where normally what would happen is you bombard the city, you defeat all the soldiers, and you know what you do? You live with their treasured natural possessions. Now, he did that, as he said, in, um, that he took a cut of the gold articles uh, that Solomon, king of Israel, had made for the temple of the Lord. You see that in verse 13. But there was something he did that was actually unorthodox at this time. Not only did he strip them of their treasured natural resources, he stripped them of their treasured human resources. Look at what he says in verse uh, 14. He carried all Jerusalem into exile, all the officers and the fighting men and all the skilled workers and the artisans, a total of 10,000. In fact, in verse 15, it, uh, verse 16, he then, uh, 15, he said, Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiachin captive to Babylon. He also took from Jerusalem to Babylon the king's mother, his wives, his officials, and prominent people of the land. The king of Babylon also deported to Babylon the entire force of 7,000 fighting men, strong and fit for war, and a thousand skilled workers and artisans. It wasn't only a military conquest, it was an exile of their most skilled people. Notice, he took the royal court, he took the high brass civil servants, he took prominent business people, he took the top military people, and then the skilled workers as well. And who did he leave? He left an incompetent puppet king, Zedekiah, in verse 16, and to rule over who, in verse 14, the poorest of the poor. When Germany was defeated after World War II, they were given a chance to rebuild. They were given loans. In fact, Europe was, this is how the, uh, the World Bank and the IMF eventually were formed. They were given the chance to rebuild. Their people remained there. When Rwanda went through their genocide, Rwanda was also given the chance to rebuild. The people were left there, they were given the loans, and they had made a lot of structural adjustments. And eventually, both countries rose again. Rwanda is now the pride of Africa. Germany is still the richest nation in Europe. But here, the Babylonian strategy ensured that there is no way that these people will be able to recover. Jerusalem had no chance because the exile was not just a sign of present defeat. It was also an insurance policy against future prosperity. They defeated them, yes, but by the time they took all their best brains, they ensured that they would never be able to recover. Guess what? Even if you say that the poorest of the poor eventually would develop themselves, maybe give them 10 years. Or let's even say 11 years. Eventually, they will develop themselves. Some of them will be more skilled than their parents and what have you. You know what happened? In verse chapter 25, 11 years after, the same thing happened again. Because this Zedekiah was now not trying to obey what Nebuchadnezzar was going to do. He tried to make an alliance with Egypt. Eventually, he was captured. Maybe I should read it in verse 8 of chapter 25. On the seventh day of the fifth month, the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, commander of the imperial guard and an official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set, he set, to, he set, to, fire, he set to fire the temple of the Lord. The initial one, in, uh, 11 years before, he just took the gold that goes down. This one, he completely destroyed it. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army under the commander of the imperial guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile. Second exile. First one, 597 BC. The second one, 586 BC. If there were very good people, if there were people that even rose up and were trying to build, he sent those ones into exile again. Nebuchadnezzar, the commander of the guard, carried into exile the people who remained in the city along with the rest of the populace and those who had deserted to the king of Babylon. But the commander left behind some of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and the fields. How could they recover? It's the same with Lagos today. 
Now, don't get me wrong, and I've preached about this many times, you cannot equate what you see about Jerusalem or Israel to any other nation in the world today, right? They were a covenant nation, and Nigeria is not a covenant nation. Lagos is not a covenant city. Lagos doesn't have a temple, you know. You can't equate, but there are certain principles that we can see that are parallels. You see, the more you dig into a little bit of history, you'll see where those parallels are. So I thought it's going to be a little bit of an orthodox sermon. Let's dig a little bit into history. After the British abolished the slave trade, and you know what the slave trade was, it was forced exile, basically, right? You are exiling, you are taking people, forced labor to go and work somewhere else. I remember what that means. You are taking their human resources, 10 million of them, over a number of uh, years. After they abolished the slave trade in 1807, they, however, made moves to have their presence in Lagos through trade, but also they kept their Royal Navy's presence around the, um, the oceans. And they were making certain kinds of deals with interior chiefs on the back of missionary activities. Eventually, there was a king that didn't like their continuous presence because he saw some of the sharp practices. His name was, wait for it, Kusoko, Oba Kusoko. And they found him to be, you know, you've heard of Jide Kusoko, the actor. Uh -huh. They found him to be quite resistant. So eventually, and I'm fast forwarding here, eventually they bombarded Lagos, bombed Lagos in 1851. They removed Kusoko, he fled to Ekpe, and they installed a puppet king called Oba Akitoe. They installed a puppet king. Have you heard that before? Now, 1853, Akitoe died. His son, Oba Dosumu, then ascends to the throne. More and more, there's British presence trade. Ah, we're just doing this thing. It's just, you know, um, it's, it's, it's voluntary. But more and more and more and more, eventually, because they were, um, they were getting scared, the British, of the French presence in Togo, in Benin, and they were scared that eventually they would move in, they eventually got Dosumu to sign a treaty of session. And so he effectively ceded Lagos to as a British colony. So slave trade gave um, uh, the slave trade left, but that gave rise to what colonization. What happened with the slave trade? The West was getting rich on the back of Africa, and we were getting impoverished. What happened with colonization as well? No, they were bringing civilization to us, but still they were taking our best resources, and they were getting rich, and we were being what? Impoverished. But thank God for independence. Because everything is about to change. Now we have our own destiny in our hands, right? Well, first of all, many Western multinationals remained here. Some of them changed their names. We will not call them to protect the guilty. <laughs> they remained here, but Again, I don't want to go into too many things, but let's say that gave rise to a sort of softer view of what has been happening. Let's call it a cycle of brain drain and brain gain. Brain drain and brain gain. Brain gain. Brain gain happens, brain gain happens when there is difficulty in the West and there is a boom here. That's what a brain, brain gain is. We gain brains back. But that's when there's difficulty there, and there's a boom here. Because you see, when there's difficulty in, when there's difficulty in a foreign land, that's when you know that you're a foreigner. Because the first people to blame are the people who are here that don't need to be here. And so we go. We've done our own to Nigeria. It's called Ghana Most. All right. So don't, don't quickly look at other people. But there's also brain drain. Brain drain happens when there's economic opportunity in the West, but they don't have the skilled workers and the workforce to be able to carry it, and then there's economic difficulty here. Do you get it? Let me give you two examples of each and cycles post-independence. In 1970s, in the West, you will not believe this, but in England, there was a time that there was no light in winter. It was called the winter of discontent. 1970s. Right? 
The IMF, the IMF went into England. It's not only happened in Africa. They went into England and said, oh, no, you guys, you need to do your books this way and all of those things. At that time, Nigerians that were living, like, what am I even doing here? I'm going back to my country. Because they didn't like you being there. And guess what? At that time, Nigeria was, we, we hammered. <laughs> like, you know, they had this uh, six-day war. And so, you know, the, the oil, oil, block, oil was blocked in the Middle East. And so the price of oil went up. And we had oil. <laughs> like, we had oil. In fact, the, 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 the Naira was stronger than the dollar at that time. Our president, Gowon, said, it's not that we don't have, it's not that we don't have money. We have too much, we don't know what to do. Our problem is that we don't know what to do with money. <laughs> People were coming back. People were coming back. There was no reason to go and give birth to your child there. My mother was pregnant with my first, my first sister. She went, she shopped in, in the UK. Shop went all around Amsterdam, and they came back and gave birth to her here. <laughs> Yeah? Because there was no reason. We had to bring in. Fast forward to the 80s. After the corruption of 1979 to 1983, eventually there was a coup by a guy, I don't know his name, but we shall not call his name. And things were so hard. That's when we had the war against indiscipline, rationing. Everybody had to live according to their means. Fast forward into the late 80s, getting to early 90s, you had the Structural Adjustment Program. Things were hard. <laughs> and so you had a lot of people migrating. There was a brain drain of the 80s. So when you see somebody called, maybe playing for the Indiana Pacers in America, and they say, oh, Victor Oladipo is Victor Oladipo. <laughs> but his parents were part of the people that went to the brain drain. So many Af Americans, so many UK people that you'll be saying, you say, ah, this, this person, that name sounds very Nigerian. Eh? Eh? Chrissy Ohorogu. Eh? Eh, all of them. Brain dream. That was the first one. Move forward. Democracy comes. Um, Baba does his um, eight years. And from about 20, 2008, to 2015, Nigeria was great again. Things were happening. We are now living off the, the boom of the telecoms industry, and then oil prices went high again. The national cake was so big, people were living large, people were coming back. It gave rise to what we call the IJGB. What does that mean? I just got back. It bring in. And do you know why the brain gain happened? Because in 2008, there was a subprime financial crisis. As though the world economy was about to go to hoot. Lehman Brothers, the fourth largest financial services company in America, went bust. People were losing their jobs. If you were in England at the time and you went to do your master's, they gave you two years visa. At that time, they reduced it the next year to one year. The next one, they reduced it. The year after, they reduced it to three months. Please, carry your bag and go. It's always the foreigner's fault. But there was a brain game. We got it here. But from 20, late 2015 up until the present day, <laughs> things are very hard. They have really been hard. Repeating itself from 1983. And now, there's open immigration in Canada. And in the UK as well. Because there's economic difficulty here, and there's economic opportunity here. There. But do you see what the effect of every brain drain is still? It is that the West is enriched, and we are impoverished. You see, the exile now of taking the best people is no longer done by force, is done by an online assessment. Point-based. But the effect is still to get your best people and leave those that are not skilled enough. Guys, 
how would we ever recover? Now, I get what some of us may be thinking. Well, our government is the one to blame. If they set up the right conditions for us to, for, uh, to succeed, that is what, you know, that's what I need. But I just want to look, uh, look after me and my family. There's nothing wrong with looking after you and your family. The person, thinking personally is very important. But listen, the effect of this thing may be personal if you are thinking of leaving, if you've left, or you are, you are already about to start leaving. The effect of this thing may be personally beneficial to you, but it comes with a collective cost. It does. And if we say it's our leaders that are the fault, well, if all of our best brains eventually leave, who are the leaders that are going to, in the future, going to eventually build the thing? You see, when we leave, eventually, the whole place suffers. At currently now, we are losing healthcare professionals in droves. I can tell you this, I know virtually 90% of the neurologists in, in, in Lagos. Because I've seen all of them. There are not many. There are about seven. IT gurus, engineers, financial professionals, educationists, researchers. What chance do we have for a rebuild after this? This is the effect of exiles. I'm not saying you shouldn't think about your personal benefit, but think about the collective as well. Well, that takes me to my second point. Why you remain. And next week, we'll talk about how you remain a little bit. But why you remain is bound up with the identity you adopt. It's bound up with, you see, the, the, the Bible and Christianity always forces us to think about our identity. Because it's the identity that we adopt, not the identity we think we adopt, but the identity we adopt that we live out in the things that we do. So it depends on the identity that you adopt. Now, based on our attitudes and our lifestyles, I want to present you with four types of Lagosians. And I've adapted it based on a talk that a guy called Tim Keller gave. But there are four types of Lagosians. Number one, we have who you call survivors. Number two, we have commuters. Now, survivors are here not by choice, right? It's, you just, you've migrated to Lagos, or they've been denying you visa since, you, you understand. <laughs> Commuters are people who are just in and out, in and out. And explain a little bit more about their characteristic attitudes. And then three, we have consumers, and we have Natives, consumers, you're having the time of your life. Natives, you've been here all your life. So what, are, what is the characteristic? And I want you to, it's a diagnostic test, all right? Self-help, <laughs> trying to help you guys. So you pick your own identity. What is the characteristic identity of survivors? Towards Lagos, it's what? Hatred. It's true. What is the characteristic identity of commuters here? It is indifference. What is the characteristic identity of consumer superficiality? The characteristic identity of natives is overprotection. I will explain a little bit by description. So survivors, hatred. Who are survivors? Survivors are mostly low to middle income earners, people that maybe live in slums, that have no dignity. How can they love this city? It has not been good to them. Or maybe you're a fledgling entrepreneur. You've tried, you know some people, they are doing um, car business, they are doing car dealership today. Next week, they are opening, they are into fashion. The week after, they are into um, uh, catering business. And now, they are now party planners. They're hustlers. It never just, you never quite break into it. Because there's one thing or the other. There's one last man guy. There's one bureaucrat asking you for a person. They hate Lagos because Lagos has never been good to them. And they cannot wait to leave if the opportunity comes, and even if the opportunity is illegal. Because their expectations have been dashed or they've not been met. You see, their love, the only love they have is the love of their tenacity that they've developed through being in the city. What about commuters? Mm. Commuters would be expatriates or maybe young corporate uh, people. They're just passing by. Right? I'm not passing by. This Lagos, I have no roots. I, when you ask them, where do you belong, you say, the world is my oyster. 
They're global citizens. When they tweet, they never tweet about anything that has to do with Nigeria. It's all about world issues. You see, they don't have time to be emotionally invested. No permanent friends, just interests. What do they love? They love the freedom to stay or leave the city above. That's what they love. What about consumers? Who are the consumers? These are people that you think will love Lagos. You see, most of those people, they have wealthy parents. It's the IJGBs. It's the people that are always, you know, in Shiro, you know, having dinner at Shiro. They're having lunch at um, Hard Rock Cafe, you know, um, you know, just uh, having mochas. They only, they only take, uh, they're, they're vegan one week. The next week, they're not quite vegan because they like steak, you know. Uh, they are the whatever, whatever, I can't even generation, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so they, they, they tweet, and on Instagram, they put pictures of Lagos that you're like, is this Lagos? <laughs> These are people that are doing well also. Social media influencers, they're entertainers, successful entrepreneurs. But guess what? These people will turn on the city if it doesn't yield its fruit. You know why? Because it's not that they love the city. They love the experience of the city. They couldn't care less, care less about the suffering of the city because they're oblivious to it. They don't see it. Once you leave Ikoi like this and you get on that island, the windows are, tint, are tinted. They don't see anything until they land the airport. You know, in Lagos, we have two states, the mainland state and the island state. <laughs> And so you then think, well, what about the natives? Because you think, well, the answer to being in those three is actually the natives. Because the natives actually are the born and bred. The people that have high knowledge about the city. They'll tell you the history of the city. They'll tell you about the Brazilians, the Agudas that came. They'll tell you about the people that built old Lagos. They'll tell you about the migration of the Egbas. They'll tell you about everything. They'll tell you about how Chapman was invented in Lagos. They know about Lagos. <laughs> If you didn't know, well, now you know. <laughs> Intellectual, their family, maybe they have a family name, Da Costa, you know, or the Da Silvers. But they're highly judgmental for, those, for people who don't understand or people who leave. They're the people that will always say, look at them, going to leave. If you go, you have a bubba job there. I know many Nigerians that go there, they go, they're just sweeping floors, doing all of those things. Very judgmental. And they also don't like people that come into Lagos that fully don't understand. They want you to be in Lagos, but don't call yourself a Lagosian, because Lagos belongs to us. And they're very self-congratulatory for staying. We are the ones that stayed, and we didn't betray. It's not so much that they love the city. They love their selves and the identity they've adopted in the city. They love the fact that they were the ones that stayed. The city gives them an identity for them to love. You see, if you're a survivor, a commuter, a consumer, the chances are if things go right or maybe go wrong for you, you will become an exile in Lagos because you have no deep love for the city. But the answer to these identities, however, is not to become a native because, as I said, natives are self-centered. They can't stand people for living. And notice that all of, the, all of them, all four of them, at the center of what they love is themselves and not others. Expressed differently, but it's the same core. And I don't believe Christians, and I'm talking to Christians, I don't believe Christians are called to experience and to react to the city in this way. In fact, I think there is another identity that Christians are called to adopt. You know what it's called? Lovers. In fact, it reminds me of a guy, a very competent guy, at the point after the exile, you know what happened? Years after the exile, the Babylonian kingdom uh, empire falls, and that gives rise to another empire called the Persian Empire. And there's this guy who is a Jew, who is now the cup bearer, which was a, wasn't just that he was giving the king, more, uh, it was also more like the financial secretary. The cup bearer of the king. A guy called Nehemiah, very well trained. In Nehemiah 1, 2 to 4, 
news about what's happening about the poorest of the poor in Jerusalem comes to him. Listen to what he says. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnants that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile, whew, is that the time? Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For days I mourned and fasted and prayed before God of heaven. Jeremiah questioned about what was going on in Jerusalem first because he cared. He loved. He didn't, it wasn't that, well, me, I'm here, oh, I, I, I just, my own city, that's what matters. I thank God that I've escaped. He questioned. He had love for the city. And in fact, when he then heard the result, he didn't then say, ah, th thank God that I'm here. He said that he fasted, he wept, and he prayed. You know what he did in chapter 2? He eventually, even though it could have cost him much, he eventually went to the king and told the king, requested for the king. He said in verse 4, he says, the king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. So that I can rebuild it. You see, what you find is that lovers are also rebuilders. I think God has called us to be lovers. Can we have that on the screen? I think God has called us to be lovers. And who are lovers? I said they are builders. What is their reaction to the city? They have deep love. That is not self-centered love, but a love for, an other-centered love. Now you say, well, those are people who have made it. No. They have different income levels. And I've met some people like that. Different income levels, they don't have to be rich before they care about what is going on. Different income levels, different kinds of jobs. But here is one big thing about them. They are committed to staying in the long term. And they have a plan. And whatever they want to achieve through and for the city. And now, I'm not saying that if you are someone younger, you have the opportunity to go and study that you shouldn't go and study. No. These younger people that have the opportunity to study, they study, they work abroad for a short term, and they return. And can I just quickly say, if you say that I want to work abroad, and I just want to get my citizenship, and then I'll return. I have not met one person that did that that returned before they were 60. So there's a short-term plan. Now, what if, what if you are an expatriate? Well, expatriates focus on learning about the city. They reduce their travel outside of the city. They do justice, and they make friends while they are around. These people promote the good of the city while others only focus. Have you ever met people that all they ever talk about is the worst things about Lagos? You never think. They, are, they, are, they even induce stress into their own lives. The truth, that's the truth. Now, I'm not saying that they're not... I, mention problems about Lagos, and you cannot be indifferent to it. You cannot be negligent to it. But Lagos is not having 20 million people because everything is bad here. And there are people that can focus and tell you wonderful things about this city. You see, they love their neighbor more than or as much as they love themselves. I'm asking you this. Many times the lens through which we think about our, our time here is socioeconomic and individualistic. But can you focus, can you take time, as God commands us to love the Lord your God with all your heart and strength, and what? Love your neighbor and yourself. Can you focus more on the collective than on the personal? That's what, it's called. That's what it means to be called a lover. Now, quickly takes me to my third point. Time has really gone. But I should say this. When you remain, that's the third point. Nehemiah's rebuilding of the wall, don't mistake, it wasn't primarily about an economic restoration. Because don't forget, why was Jerusalem annexed and exiled in the first place? It was spiritual rebellion. Nehemiah was rebuilding for proper worship to be restored to tr the true God. That's why you get to Nehemiah 7, verse 73. What do you see? It says, the priests and Levites, the gatekeepers, the musicians, the temple servants, along with certain people of the people, and this is after Nehemiah's reforms, 
of the rest of the Israelites settled in their own towns. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law. So now they wanted to go back to the Bible. To bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded them for, for Israel. 8 verse 6. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and what? Worshipped. He was doing all he was doing because he knew that the restoration of the city was at the most fundamental restoration of the city was going to be a spiritual one. But you know what? Nehemiah's rebuilding efforts and reforms ultimately did not work. Because partly, Nehemiah was this kind of person that said, I want to go and give back. And then he left. <laughs> Nehemiah 13 verse 6, look at what he says. He said, but while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem for in the 20, 20, 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had what? Returned. The guy went back. He kind of dipped in. He did some Western Union stuff. And then he went back. So by the time he came back, he found out that the people had started sinning again. The priest allowed the Gentile into the temple, 13 verse 6, B to 7. The Levite wine paid from the tithes, 13, and this would just be running there, 13, 11. People were conducting business on the Sabbath day, 13, 15. And the Jews were intermarrying with other nations, 13 verse 23. These were sins that were forbidden in the law. They had already opened the book back, but they had gone back to sinning. His reforms ultimately failed. So that at the end of the book of Nehemiah, overwhelmed with disappointment, he eventually turns to self-pity and self-love. He said, God, please, remember those people. This is verse 29 to 31. Remember those people, all those people that sinned well. God, remember them, punish them, punish them. But remember the things that me, I did. Remember me, my God. Eventually, after the disappointment and he couldn't get the revival he wanted, he just said, okay, it's just, let me just turn to myself. And sometimes that's the way we are. I've done my bit. I was disappointed. I've done my bit. I've put in my... So now I'm leaving. But, but let me ask you this. If you have a child that you love, if that child messes up over and over again, do you at any point ever say, I don't love this child again. I'm not doing my own. Let me just think about myself. Do we ever? If you do that, you don't really love that child. And this is why, if we are thinking about human, hum, and the truth is that, Lagos is not your child. <laughs> so Zabu has said, that's my child, not Lagos. I can love you to a certain extent. And let me tell you the truth, that's the truth. The truth is that, if we are really thinking about rebuilding, it is God himself that must rebuild. If we think mere human lovers for Lagos are enough to rebuild this city holistically, then please think again. And that brings me to the final, you know, the final point of the passage we read, the final verses, is the way the book of Kings ends. And when I say book of Kings, I mean one and two kings. There's really one book. It's a very, very curious ending. Because you end with the second, you, you describe the second um, exile. And yet you then talk about what's happening 26 years after that one, that this Awel Marduk then restores Jehoiashin modestly restores him. Now he's eating at his table. Why did he put that there? Don't forget that Jehoiashin is in the Davidic line. God had promised that eventually his Messiah will come through David. But now the house of David, the tent of David, the, fall, the tabernacle of David has fallen. The city has been destroyed. The monarchy has been taken away. The temple has been taken away. The exiles have been moved out. So what hope is there for Jerusalem? What hope is there for Israel? And if you follow the Bible, what hope is there for the world? And the writer just gently inserts, Jehoiashin has been restored, even though moderately, even though modestly. You know why? He's giving us a hint. That despite the efforts of Babylon, that God's plan of restoration for Jerusalem has not ended. In fact, the apostles in an apostolic council in Acts chapter 15 understood this. And so they talked about the broken tabernacle or the broken tent of David. It's not about restoring the temple of praise. Let me tell you what it is about. 
In Acts chapter 15, verse 7b, when they were discussing certain things in the early church, they quoted the prophet Amos in Amos 9. They said, after this, I will return. I will return and do what? Rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins, I will rebuild. It is only God that can do this rebuilding. Amen? Amen. And I will restore it. That the rest of mankind... The rest of mankind, not just the people of Israel, not just the people of Jerusalem, but the rest of mankind, the Gentiles, the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, known, these things known from long ago. And we're like, what does it mean? How does the broken tent of David, the fallen tent of David, how does that lead to the restoration of mankind? Well, Peter says this earlier in Acts 15, 7b. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles may hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. We believe it through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. There's still hope, guys. You see, because the broken tabernacle of David, the house of David was restored, the lineage from Jerusalem eventually terminates in the person of Jesus Christ, who actually goes, dies for sins, but goes to the throne of David in heaven. Because of him, the Holy Spirit was poured out in Jerusalem so that there was not just hope for Jerusalem, but as it says here, there was hope for all the Gentile cities of the world, including Lagos. Listen to what I'm saying. I am not asking us to remain strictly because we want to build this city economically or build this city uh, uh, culturally. No, I'm asking you to remain because I believe in my heart of heart that God has a plan for this city and God wants to bring a spiritual renewal to this city. But he needs people who love Lagos. He needs people who love Jesus because he's the one that pours out his spirit. You have to be a Jesus lover first before you can be a Lagos lover if you want to be partake of this. But I'm asking you something. Think not just about yourself. For some of us, that's the first time in our life. Think not just about your comfort. God is asking you to make a sacrifice because he made a sacrifice for you through his son. He's saying care about the brokenness here. Care about the sin here. Stay. Because I want to use you. If there was hope for Jerusalem and it was restored, there's hope for Lagos. And I believe that God wants us to see a spiritual, social, and cultural renewal. And I think He can do that with us. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church Love Jesus Love people Love Lagos